Welcome to Midwifing America, Episode 9, Birth Has No Borders. It is nothing for families to have been separated at the border for years and for pregnant folks that are crossing the border to not be with their family and to have to birth in an environment where they're scared that they may not get their child back. In today's episode, we hear from a midwife about how undocumented status impacts healthcare and from a mom who made the difficult decision to cross the border in search of a better life. We start walking at the end. It was really dark. And I remember Madora being the first one to say that she was really scared. I guess it's when it started being real for me because being a mother, I don't want to see my kids being scared of anything. I'm Angie Chisholm. I'm Kate Bowen. I'm Abigail Ayapola. I'm Emily Yast. And I'm Katie Robbins. We are Midwifing America, an innovative podcast hosted by five midwives who reimagine maternity care and other issues affecting women. I am Angie Chisholm with Midwifing America. In honor of International Day of the Midwife, this episode explores themes around immigration and midwifery. International Day of the Midwife celebrates the universal experience of what it means to be a midwife no matter where you live or practice. Our first guest is Marina Farrell. She's a fellow podcaster at the Good Birth for All podcast and a midwife on the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona. So I'm a midwife in Phoenix and I attend pretty much just home births. I did have a period where I was attending births at a birth center. But now I'm basically doing home birth as well as a lot of community-based projects. So I work a lot with immigration issues here in Arizona and work with some different nonprofits around that work, as well as traditional medicine, indigenous politics, especially around health and reproductive justice. And um, I'm involved in some Native American groups as well. And then also trying to offer free healthcare and be a part of that movement as well as street level activism that happens here in Arizona quite frequently, which is also based usually around immigration issues. And so I do that. That's kind of my world here. And I am involved in some national projects. So I like to do some work here in the United States with other folks doing works, uh, work around the country and I do like to stay connected to Mexican politics as well as Central American um, politics in terms of midwifery and healthcare. So I stay connected with a lot of the folks doing maternal and newborn family, primary care. You know, in traditional countries, midwives tend to do a lot. I guess everywhere we tend to do a lot. But they're, they're really finding their identity in terms of how they want to move forward in licensure. So I'm trying to stay really connected with that. And then I do some work in New Mexico. I'm the president of Changing Women Initiative, which is a Native American-run uh, collective that offers community health work and education, as well as there are two incredible Native American midwives offering birth services there and reproductive health services, and we just have this really fabulous board. Immigration is a controversial topic in America, and as such, it carries many implications for midwifery practice. 
Marina introduces us to how immigration status and policies may impact the delivery of pregnancy care. In pregnancy, what happens in our immigration system is that if somebody appears to be very close to being in labor, so say if you're a mom that has a big belly, uh, quite often the immigration services will release you and just kind of drop you off at the Greyhound station or, you know, wherever and kind of be like, okay, you're sort of on your own. And it is really the work of volunteers. So lots of nonprofits and lots of volunteers in the border towns. And so this is in every border town, New Mexico, Arizona, California, where folks will pick these people up and try to figure out what they need and how to get them help or host families. Um, and then in my case, it's always um, working with the different volunteer groups to determine the needs of these pregnant uh, moms. Like, do they, are they going to birth soon? Are they still able to travel? The other thing is they don't have a choice about travel. They still have to travel. Part of their agreement to be here is that they have to get on a bus and they have to go from Arizona to New York City or to North Carolina or to wherever their host uh, families are that have agreed to host them. They're kind of held accountable for this crossing and or they have to get on a plane. And so they really have no choice. They have to travel. If you are a midwife in the U.S., chances are you care for undocumented patients. And you may have your own firsthand experiences with the cultural, linguistic, and financial barriers to providing quality care to this population. Our next guest, Nadia, tells us about her experiences in accessing maternity care here in the U.S. as an immigrant. The difference in Mexico and in here for me, and like a midwife came to the house, she did come once a month to take care of me. And the day that I started having my contraction, she come, I guess I start with the pain eight o'clock in the morning. They went to get her at 30, and by nine I already have the baby. And I love the attention that she had for me. She was all about for me to be comfortable, explain to me what I have to do and everything. So, I don't use medicine or nothing, just, I, we did what she told me. I got her in the floor in my house, and that's it, you know, I had the baby at 15 at 10, and by 10 she was already gone, like, she said she don't have nothing else to do in there, and the baby was okay, and I was okay, and I can take the baby to the doctor the next day. And when I had the babies in here, Mm, I started going to the health department when I was four months pregnant. Every appointment that I went through, it was from two to three to four hours. So for me, it was, you know, when you have more kids at home, it's just too many hours to be waiting for somebody. Uh, in the hospital, when I got there, same thing. I don't think that I had that much attention for myself about... Uh, it was... I don't feel like the nurses was to worry about how I feel. It was more just about the baby. And I don't know if it was because in Mexico, this midwife that uh, she was always going to see me, she always think that when a, when a mother is going to have a baby, we can die too. It can be something wrong that we ended up having some kind of problems. But in here, I don't feel the way. It was just so make sure the baby was coming okay, and that's it. I asked Marina to elaborate on the realities of midwifery practice along the U.S.-Mexico border. One of the things that I have been saying recently, because it's just really 
I guess it's just really hitting me that we live in this time where a lot of injustice, like, so people who don't normally experience injustice on a daily basis, or maybe they do, but they don't recognize it versus those of us who experience it on a daily basis. So whether it's an undocumented person or an African-American or, you know, somebody who experiences these really high levels of injustice uh, in, our, in our different system. And so these are people who are now starting to recognize like, whoa, we have all these cracks in the system. So there is some beauty in that because I feel that folks are, are understanding now where there's a lot of issues in our criminal justice system and in our healthcare system and so on and so forth. Well, one of the places that I'm really seeing it with the pandemic is that there tends to be this outrage and rightly so, but I tend to hear it, you know, I've been on a lot of webinars lately and a lot of meetings and, you know, things like that where a lot of people who do work in the birth and maternal health, they're talking about the issues that they're having. And so some of those issues would be like insurance reimbursement for COVID or partners being separated for birth or the mother being separated from the baby or other sorts of very strong-handed behavior done on the part of hospitals and even birth centers and home birth being very selective right now, right? Like if you have it, you can't birth it out of hospital and, you know, things like that. And is breastfeeding okay? Is it not okay? Like all of these different questions about the rights of women and birthing people and their children. But what I always like to say is that this is nothing new for so many people who have lived in this country or who have come to this country as refugees, and I think of undocumented people as refugees. And, you know, it is nothing for families to have been separated at the border for years now. And for pregnant uh, folks that are crossing the border to not be with their family and to have to birth alone, and not only birth alone, but birth in an environment where they're scared that they may not get their child back. Despite all the risk, Nadia shares her thoughts about what compels people to illegally cross the border from Mexico. When I was in Mexico, I remember watching TV and see even commercials with some kind of like cartoon kind of commercials, but trying to explain to you how dangerous it is for you to cross the desert. Everybody coming here, I believe, for different reasons. A lot of people there are no, they coming here, it was to have better things for their family. Uh, to me, when I wasn't there, uh, since I was little, I always thought that I want to be a doctor or a nurse, so I thought if I would do that, I don't have to go to another country, I can stay in my own country and make something good. But I guess um, my life was not supposed to be go the way. When you look at the, the population that are undocumented or refugee status, those folks have always, always been in a place where their rights have always been taken away from them, even when they're birthing. So one of the things that I like to just bring to people's attention is that as you talk about 
these things with insurance reimbursement being challenging as somebody that works with undocumented people, they've never been able to access telemedicine. We've never been able to do that. Even those of us that provide free care, even at uh, Phoenix Allies for Community Health, which is a free clinic in, in Phoenix that provides uh, primary medical care for free, we've never been able to do that. Um, or And so even worrying about insurance, even as a home birth midwife, it's really rare for us to have to worry about that. And I think I was on a call the other day where people were talking about um, some of the other issues around health in general and their pregnant clients being at this higher risk of, of getting sick and things like that. And I just think about all of the families that I see that get out of detention and immigration detention is very, very, very hard. We will see a parent with young children because generally they separate the parents so when you're helping an undocumented family, there's generally only one parent because the other one is possibly in a different detention somewhere or still in the process of crossing. And, you know, always, always, they're not well. And that is because they keep those detention centers so cold and they take away everything. So here are children in T-shirts that are in detention centers um, and little children, toddlers, don't have adequate heat. You know, they always come out sick and they always come out with uh, different issues like that. Or sometimes even just the crossing that people will do, um, the days and days of the nutrition or water. Nadia is my sister-in-law. It was difficult for me to first hear the details of why she had to leave Mexico and what it was like for her to walk through the desert. As I listened to her story, I couldn't help but to think of all the undocumented women that I've cared for over the years as a midwife and how little I knew about what brought them here. Made the decision to come in here because something really bad was happened to me in Mexico and I feel that I don't have a place in Mexico to hide from this person. So I thought if I was coming to this country, it was hard for me to follow me. What I did is contact my daddy so he can help me. And he said he will, but I had to walk in the desert if I want to do that. But everything was better for me than being in Mexico with the stuff that was happening to me. Just crossing in Mexico to the, to the border, it took me two days because I use buses, um, one aeroplane, and then we have to walk a lot to get to the end of the border where I have to stay to wait for my day that I have to walk the desert. Uh, and then walking the desert, it takes us five days and four nights. When I left the house where I was living, I left with anything. And my daddy picked me up in the bus station. He did buy some clothes for me and my kids, because I have two kids at the time. Um, and he's the one to pay for the bus and the aeroplane to get to the part that I have to go. When we got there, he buy for us some snacks like crackets and stuff that they don't go bad pretty easy. And like two gallons of water so we can be ready by the day the guy said that we have to start walking. The day that we left the 
little hotel room. My daddy take me and my kids to, I'm not sure if it was like a farm or somebody's house. And this person have some, another stuff for sale, like sacks, snacks, sodas or water. And I start noticing that a lot of people start showing up in there. And people start making groups with another people, I guess, they feel more comfortable around with. And the group that I was, um, at least like five couples, two or three single ladies, and like five guys, the single guys. I guess they have the wives in Mexico. Um, my daddy left us in there because he uh, was a resident at the time, so he was gonna go to the airport so he can fly to Arizona. We got in there at five o'clock in the afternoon and we wait till at least 10 at night to start walking. When it got dark, one guy of the group, he got some kind of garlic of a bag. And he said that we had to peel the garlic and rub it in the top of the clothes because that way the snakes or the scorpions don't get close to us. We started walking at the end. It was really dark. And I remember Madora being the first one to say that she was really scared. I guess it's when it started being real for me because being a mother, I don't want to see my kids being scared of anything. So I just started holding her hand really tight and tell her that we'll be okay. She just need to walk like everybody else. But the more that we walk, the more dark it gets in the desert, a lot of different noises. Some people in the group start saying that some people in the desert, they aren't there to steal from the groups that they know they're crossing the desert, to rape the lady or sometimes the kids. So it's what it got me to start thinking that if I had to go back, or oh, I just keep going. But when I thought to go back, and I remember what was happening to me in there, it was just, I guess thinking that if I stay in Mexico, what was happening to me, what's gonna happen to Madora is what it made me keep coming. According to data from the International Organization for Migration, two of the top reasons reported for migration include poverty and escaping violence. Well, the first day that we walked, we stopped walking around five in the afternoon, and the guy said we can take a break for one hour, and he was going to be awake, because when you're walking in the daytime, you're going to see a lot of helicopters. In the time, I don't even know what it was. The guy said that maybe it was immigration from this country trying to catch some people. I don't know how close I was to the border in the time. It's why I'm not sure what it was. Um, what was going to happen, my daddy said that it was going to be a car just driving around. Like, we're going to notice the same car passing on the road two or three times. It was going to be the car that I have to run to the road to make, like, um, put my hand like that I need a ride. The car was, was going to pick me and my kids and another people up. And this car was going to take us to a house. So it was not easy for me to run to the car because my son was almost dead. He was having some kind of white stuff coming out of his mouth. So I asked one of the guys that was walking with us if he can stop the car, and he did. When we the car stopped, and they said that we have to hurry up because immigration is all around in there, they put my son in with the feet of the person the uh, co-pilot go, and I was behind the passenger seat in the ground, and Madora was in the other side, and three ladies sit in the seat. I guess we was in the car for maybe like two hours because by the time that we got in this house, 
I can feel my body. Same thing with my kids. They just like crying and told me that they're in a lot of pain. We got in this big house and when they opened the doors, it was a lot of people in there. Some people that I see before I left Mexico. Some group make it to this side and some they don't make it. So we got there and we stayed there for few hours in the daytime till my daddy contact the guy that was driving the car and he tell him to please take us to the hotel where he was staying. Uh, when I got the hotel room and I talked to my daddy where we was, he said I was in Arizona. And before I get to the car, it was a line that we have to cross that maybe I don't notice because I was so worried about my son. And it's, it was already Arizona line. So we got in the car and the same guy that take us to the house is the one that take us to the hotel room. He don't take me exactly to the hotel because he was really scared that my son was gonna die and he was gonna be responsible for. So he let us a little bit before the hotel so he, we can walk to the hotel room. So we got to the hotel room, my daddy was waiting for us outside uh, and then we stayed there till the next day. Fears of family separation and deportation often prevent migrant families from accessing health care. When I asked my daddy if he, we can go to the hospital, my daddy said because I was not leaving the kids either, it was not easy to take, uh, to have somebody to, like, to check my kid without them notice that he was illegal and maybe they're going to deport him and me too. So he recommend me to just go to Walmart or any kind of store and get something uh, for the symptoms. He thought the problem was that he don't eat and he don't drink anything. So he needs something. And what I ended up doing is just buy hot like soups and something for his belly. And I give him a hot bath and let him sleep. And thank God he wake up the next morning. We were kind of talking about stories, and I just really wanted to illustrate that this has been a reality for these people for a long time. And so I'm hoping that for any families out there who recognize the injustice of a healthcare system that would separate families or separate a birthing person from their partner, that they recognize that this is happening every day in our immigration system and with our undocumented families. I am Angie Chisholm. We appreciate you listening to Episode 9 of Midwifing America. Thanks to Nadia Banta and Marina Farrell for their stories and expertise. And a special thanks to my co-hosts Kate Bowen, Katie Robbins, Emily Yast, and Abigail Ayapola for their parts in producing this episode. We at Midwifing America believe that all birthing people deserve access to quality midwifery care. Today's episode of Midwife in America was produced by Russell Choppa with all original music by Russell Choppa. We're committed to open dialogue around women's health and maternity care. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Midwife in America. If you want to join our conversation, find us at midwifingamerica.com and at Midwife in America on Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode of Midwife in America was brought to you by the Oregon affiliate of the American College of Nurse Midwives and with a grant from the Francis T. Thatcher Foundation.